Well, beloved, we are back this morning in the parables of Jesus Christ, the fifth of seven parables that we hope to consider this late spring here at CBC in the year 2022. The series title is Mirrors, Hammers, and More Than Morality. Mirrors, Hammers, and More Than Morality. Those things are all descriptive of the parables. Mirrors, the parables of Christ, serve to show us ourselves as we really are. The parables show us our hearts, our hearts, our minds, our affections, our desires. All of those things are laid bare as we see ourselves in the parables of Jesus. Hammers, as we see ourselves for who and what we really are, and as Christ communicates realities of sin and judgment, of redemption and salvation, the parables of Christ crush our pride, crush our notions of our own righteousness. It's obliterated. We cannot trust in ourselves in any way. And the parables of Christ finally are more than morality. We've used this phrase a number of times. I hope it sticks with you. The parables of Christ are not just Aesop's fables baptized. They are far more than morality. And for that matter, the Christian faith, while in one sense never less than its morality, is not about morality. What makes Christianity utterly unique in the scope of every world religion is its message, not its morality. In the parables, Jesus communicates truths about the kingdom of God, about how it's built and established in the world. He communicates truths about the kingdom of heaven in terms of how it operates because as we've thought about so many times, it doesn't work like we think that it would or even like we think it should in our fallen nature. Jesus communicates realities of redemptive history, even the history of God's own people. He communicates realities, as I've said, of sin and judgment and salvation in the parables. And he communicates the law of God and the gospel of God. Today, we're going to consider the parable of the Good Samaritan. On the one hand, this parable really doesn't need an introduction. It is that familiar to probably everyone in the room. It is a privilege for me to stand before you today and stand with you today to open God's word to this very well-known text. So if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, open them to Luke chapter 10. We're going to be looking today at verses 25 through 37 of Luke 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, we will get the words to the sermon text on the screen behind me. You will be helped to be able to look at the words as we go through this text together. As you are turning there, just a brief word about what occurs in the first 24 verses of Luke chapter 10. The gospel writers arrange their material on purpose the way that they arrange it. So it matters that we would consider these things even in brief. At the beginning of Luke 10, Jesus sends out 72 of his followers to tell people in the surrounding towns, villages, cities that the kingdom of God has come near. He then, Jesus does, beginning in verse 13, begins to pronounce words of judgment. Woe unto these various cities and towns. And he even goes so far as to say, with respect to Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, that if works that had been done in them, he's talking about his own works, if works that had been done in them, if the message that had been proclaimed in them had been done in Tyre and Sidon and elsewhere in other Gospels, Capernaum, if the works that had been done in you had been done in Sodom, people would have repented long ago and Sodom would still remain. The 72 come back and they rejoice in the power that the Lord had given them, even over the evil spirits. And Jesus' word to them is, don't rejoice in that. It's true that that's great, but don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
And then Jesus, in that context, rejoices and praises God and gives God thanks that he has saved and operated the way that he has. He praises the Father that he has kept these things, these truths, these mysteries about the kingdom of God, hidden from the wise and the powerful and the understanding. But he has revealed them to little children, to those who are like children, who receive for such was your gracious will, says Jesus. And he says to his disciples privately that their eyes are blessed because of what they see. That kings and prophets longed and desired to see what they see and to hear what they hear. But they didn't see it and they didn't hear it. But these people with Christ saw it and heard. Blessed are you, he says. So in all of that, what's going on? The proclamation, the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come in particular in that Messiah has arrived. Woe unto those who reject the works of the Christ, who reject the Christ. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And such is the gracious will of the Father that he has revealed these things to those who are as little children and has saved them. Blessed are you who see what you see and hear what you hear. Now we come to Luke 10 and verse 25. Let's read the passage together. This is the word of God. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Amen. We thank God for his word. So my plan for today is to consider the following things in this order. The occasion for the parable of the Good Samaritan. Secondly, the parable itself. Thirdly, the point of the parable. Why was it told? Lastly, we will do some additional reflection and application. The occasion, the parable, the point, some additional reflection and application. So here we go. The occasion for the parable. We're going to look at verses 25 to 29 together for a decent bit of time. The occasion, the purpose for which... This parable is told, becomes clear, I should say, through the occasion, the circumstance in which it's communicated. The parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most well-known parables that Jesus told during his earthly ministry. That's not debatable. This parable has been so well-known through human history that the term Good Samaritan, it's a proper noun, I mean, even in dictionaries, the term Good Samaritan is recognizable and discernible to the vast majority of people in the English-speaking world. That's how common 
this is, even in our vernacular. So given that, we should ask ourselves, as we've asked of every parable we've considered so far, but perhaps today in a pointed way, given that reality, given our own familiarity with this story, have we rightly understood it? So the million dollar interpretive question is this, why did Jesus tell the parable? If we can answer that question, that will be key to understanding the parable itself. So that's why we're taking our time here. Verse 25. You can put your eyes there. A lawyer, so when you read that, understand a scribe who is an expert in the law. A lawyer. A very respected figure in Jewish religious life. Stands up, Luke tells us, to test Jesus. To put him to the test. Jesus, of course, had been saying a number of things in his ministry. He had been speaking in ways that were very authoritative, I say to you kind of language. He had been saying some things about himself that were shocking. He had been saying things about the kingdom of God that were also startling. And the lawyer here is putting him on the spot publicly. Notice the lawyer's question. He asks, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Massively important. Christ is going to respond to that question. What must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Christ will respond to specifically that question. Jesus is going to speak about how men are to live so that they might be accounted righteous in the sight of God. Jesus is going to speak about the works required in order to obtain eternal life. Verse 26. You can see this immediately. Look at Jesus' response. What is written in the law? How do you read it? What is written, notice, in the law? How do you understand it? He asks. Verse 27, the lawyer answers. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, Jesus responds and says, you have answered correctly. Stop. Pause. Had the lawyer answered correctly? Yes, he had. He had rightly summarized the requirements of God's law. He had spoken the words of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He had spoken the words of Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself is the summary of the Ten Commandments that we read earlier. The first four commandments, as we confessed, pertain to our love to God. The latter six pertain to our love of neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is a summary of the entire law. Jesus himself says this elsewhere. Matthew chapter 22, particularly verses 37 to 40, if you want to make that note. In that context, Jesus was asked by another lawyer, teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus answered then, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, said Christ. So yes, the lawyer here in Luke 10 had answered correctly. Back to the verse, verse 28. 
Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now when you hear live, you need to think eternal life. Do this and you will have eternal life. That do this and live language is directly from Leviticus 18.5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Paul picks up on that language from Leviticus in Galatians 3 and Romans 10. In Romans 10.5, for example, Paul writes, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And again, when you hear live, we mean live forever. It means when you live in that way, it means you will be accounted righteous in the sight of God and thereby will have eternal life. So this is massively important. Jesus, in responding to the question that the lawyer posed to him, speaks true words of straight law. Love God with all you are. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do that and you will have eternal life. Then verse 29. The lawyer asks another question. And Luke tells us, by the inspiration of the Spirit, why the lawyer asked the question. But he, seeking to justify himself. Huge question. Justify himself according to what? The law. Right? The law. That's huge for our understanding. The lawyer's question is, and who is my neighbor? Because Jesus had just said, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? The lawyer is trying to get more specificity regarding who his neighbor is. And he is trying to do so, you know this, he's trying to do so in such a way that will be favorable to him. See, in this day, in this context, there was a corruption of the law on the part of the scribes. They often only considered those to be their neighbor who they deemed worthy of that status. There was also a pretty commonly accepted principle in this day that it was okay to hate one's enemies. Jesus speaks to this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I'm telling you, you need to love your enemies and pray for them, right? So you see the lawyer's angle here. If he can reduce down the scope of who actually is his neighbor, if he can dumb down the requirements of the law enough, he can be justified by his keeping of it. So all of that is the occasion for the parable of the Good Samaritan. The importance of that cannot be overstated for our understanding. Jesus is telling the parable to a man who is seeking to justify himself according to the law. And in particular, he's telling the parable to a man who is seeking to demonstrate that he has kept the second table of the law by loving his neighbor. So keep that in mind as we look to the parable itself, which that's where we're headed. So we've considered the occasion. We're now going to consider the parable from verses 30 through 37. You can put your eyes on it just as we walk through it together. So how does Jesus respond to that question? He responds with a story. He says, there was a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers. This was a dangerous road to travel. I mean, that was well known. So this man falls among robbers. He's stripped. He's beaten. They obviously would have taken his goods from him, anything that he had with him, and then they leave him half dead. And then in verse 31, a priest is headed down the road. Now, 
priests in this context were people, were men who served in the temple, receiving and offering sacrifices on behalf of the people and officiating worship. That's what they did. It's a religious man involved in the religious life of the Jewish community. So in verse 31, by chance, he just happened to be going down the road, unplanned. You know, he wasn't planning to encounter what he encountered. And he sees this man beaten half to death, laying there, and when he sees him, he passes by on the other side of the road, leaves the man there. In verse 32, a Levite shows up on the road. Now, Levites were those who were involved in various duties pertaining to the temple and its worship as well. They would have assisted the priests. They would have prepared sacrifices. They would have done a lot of cleansing of vessels and the temple courts. They would have, at points, sung songs and served as musicians and even at times been asked to interpret the Torah, the Levites. So again, another religious man who is respected and is a key piece of the religious community is going down the road and he sees the man beaten half to death laying there on the road and passes by on the other side, leaving him. Then we get to verse 33 and the Samaritan shows up on the scene. Just briefly for our information, who were the Samaritans? They were, just trying to put it in common language, they were, from the perspective of the Jews, ethnic and religious half-breeds. So after King Solomon, many in the room will know, the kingdom of Israel was split into two kingdoms. Israel in the north, with its capital being Samaria. Judah in the south, with its capital being Jerusalem. Well, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 BC, and most of the Israelites from the northern kingdom were deported. And the land was settled by foreigners. And those foreigners intermarried with the surviving Israelites, and those are the people that are known as the Samaritans. So that's the ethnic piece. But in addition, the religion of the Samaritans had been tainted in various ways, too many to count right now, by paganism. So their ethnicity compromised, their religion compromised from the perspective of the Jews. And the big piece of this, because of all that, Samaritans and Jews were at enmity with each other. That's important for this parable. A Samaritan and a Jew were at enmity with each other naturally. So the Samaritan shows up. As he journeys, he comes to where this man, this Jewish man was. When he saw him, he had compassion. He goes to him. He binds up his wounds. He treats them with oil and wine. He then puts him on his own animal, brings him to an inn, and takes care of him. We're not told how many. Yes, we are. We're told it's the next day. So one night he spends, and then he's got to go, but he leaves money for provision so that this man can be taken care of by the innkeeper. And he says, look, if you spend more money than I've left you, don't worry about it. When I come back, I'll settle up. I'll handle it. So this man has greatly inconvenienced himself. He didn't realize that he was going to come upon a nearly dead stranger on the road, treats his wounds, takes care of him on the road, puts him on his own animal, takes him to an inn, cares for him overnight, and then leaves money for the ongoing care of the man. Verse 36. Jesus is now going to drive this home. He asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Checkmate. Right? There's only one answer that the lawyer can give. And he gives it in verse 37. The one who showed him mercy, he says. To which Jesus says, you go and do likewise. The significance of this. The Samaritan is the one in the parable who proved to be a neighbor to the wounded man. How did he prove that? Not only by loving him sacrificially in general, that's true but by loving and showing great compassion to a man who was his enemy. 
Do you see the dilemma for the lawyer? He had sought to justify himself according to the law by asking Jesus, well, who's my neighbor? He was hoping for an answer that would be favorable to him. And Jesus has forced him to confess by telling this parable. He has forced the lawyer to confess that under the law, every man is his neighbor. Even his enemies are his neighbor. And he is to love them, and he is to show mercy to them, he is to have compassion on them, he is to give of himself for them. Which brings us now to the point. The occasion we've considered, the parable we've considered, the point. What's the point of the parable? The point. Now talking about secondary, tertiary application. What is the point? By asking that, I mean, what is Jesus saying to this lawyer primarily and thereby to everyone who heard it? And what is he saying primarily to us? All right, so let me say what I think you're expecting it to be and what you have probably always heard that it is. The point is, be the Good Samaritan. I assume that's what many would expect. The point is, be the Good Samaritan. But in reality, what is the point that Christ is making to a man who is seeking to justify himself according to the law? He tells this parable to force him to confess that every man is my neighbor. This is what God's law requires of me. And Christ effectively says to this man, bro, you have not done this. None of y'all have done this. CBC, we have not done this. Unequivocally, the purpose, the main point of the parable is to condemn the lawyer. His aim, the aim of Christ, is to force the lawyer to respond in such a way that he would condemn himself. How does he do it? How does Christ make him confess that? He tells this parable that make clear the requirements of the law when it comes to love of neighbor, and in doing that, making the standard clear, it becomes obvious that no son or daughter of Adam, including this scribe, could do that. No one meets the test. When it comes to righteousness before God, the law only condemns. Romans 5.20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Romans 7.13. The law was given in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law is good and righteous and holy. Amen? Amen. There is no fault in the law's doctrine whatsoever. The fact that the law can only condemn us before God in terms of righteousness in his presence is not because there is something wrong with the law. But it is because it is impossible for us to perform what the law requires. The law shows us the depth of our sin and the depth of our corruption. So when we use that language of we are crushed by the law, that's what we mean. So that we are shown the depth of our corruption, the depth of our sin, we're crushed by the law so that our sin might be shown to be sin. And so that through the law, we might be shown to be sinful beyond measure. This is the first and greatest use of the law. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. Paul asks this question. Why then was the law given? If God saves by promise, why was the law given? His answer, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And he's talking about Christ. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. 
But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Which is why a few verses later, Paul writes in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. That's us. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 22. Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the law and the gospel, beloved. No son or daughter of Adam can obtain salvation by works of the law. It is only in Christ Jesus by faith that we would ever be reconciled to God and be able to stand in his holy presence with confidence, with peace, with assurance, that we are in fact his sons and daughters. We can stand in Christ because all of the sins that we have committed and just the inherent corruption of our nature was dealt with by Christ in his suffering. Pointedly on the cross, he bled for Adam's helpless race. So that God would be just in forgiving our sins and forgiving our iniquity and our corruption because Christ had satisfied the justice of God and had fulfilled the penalty, excuse me, of the law. But then, in a pointed way, when we think about the law and its requirements, it's not just that we've broken all the commandments. It's that we have never really kept them. And so we have to have a righteousness that is perfect if we are ever going to stand in the judgment. And Christ has provided that for all who trust in him. He lived a life that was perfect. Not only did he love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength every minute. Not only did he meditate on the law of God day and night, Psalm 1. He, in addition, in meditating on the law of God day and night, lived in light of it every moment. Which means that he perfectly loved his neighbor always. And so his righteous life is counted as your righteous life and my righteous life by faith. In Christ we die to the law because his death is our death. In Christ we become the righteousness of God because his righteousness is our righteousness. This is the gospel. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. May God give us grace that we would understand that. Myself included. I, we are so prone, and we're going to think about this more in a minute, to go to the law like this lawyer does. Asking questions that can only condemn. May we trust that Christ is our righteousness. And so now, as Paul says in Romans 7.22, we can delight in the law of God in our inner man knowing that we have been forgiven, justified, and absolved of guilt. So this brings us to the point now where I want to do some additional reflection, explanation, application. We're going to have two points and a conclusion here for the remainder of our time. Point one of our additional time here is this. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, speaks in different contexts differently about eternal life. I'll say this in a different way. And see how many times I can say the word different. 
Jesus speaks different ways in different contexts about eternal life. You guys are tracking with me. So what I mean is this. If you read the Gospels, and by the way, if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ, read the Gospels. It's where you will know him. When you read the Gospels, you observe Christ in various settings, various contexts, interacting with different groups of people, responding to different questions, different tests. And he says different things about eternal life. In some contexts, like today, he tells people, keep the law. Love God, love neighbor. Do this and you'll live. In other contexts, he's super clear. Believe in me. Trust in me. It's the Father's will that anyone who looks on the Son would not perish, right? It's the will of the Father that anyone who looks on the Son will be raised in the last day, won't be lost. Just as the snake, the serpent, was lifted up in the wilderness, so I must be lifted up in anyone who looks upon me, right? He says those things. So, if you don't have appropriate frameworks for understanding that, you will get tripped up all over the place as you seek to understand the scripture. What often occurs for people when they see this various language from Christ, over here keep the law, over here believe in me, few things happen, none of them good. Sometimes people end up effectively pitting one against the other. Here it's faith, here it's law, I guess it's both, we're not sure how, it's mysterious. Yes, we're to believe in Christ and somehow our works factor in to salvation. That's one thing that happens. Or, perhaps you just kind of mash them together somehow. It's like, believe in Jesus and then prove yourself legitimate through law-keeping. Right? So in that schema, it's faith in Christ and law-keeping that lead to eternal life. Now, there are significant problems with either one of those approaches. I hope you see that. Because in both of those approaches, the law and the gospel, respectively, are made less clear, not more clear. The order of salvation is confused. The relationship between justification, the declaration of God that a sinner is just, and sanctification, the process of becoming more holy, more righteous, those two are collapsed and confused. The message, often, if you take one of these approaches, is that our identity is inextricably tethered to how well we are performing the obligations that the law places upon us. And if we are not performing well enough, then our identity as a son or daughter of God is in question. The better approach is to understand that we live from our union with Christ and see that our duty, what we are to do, is derived from our identity. Identity determines duty. Duty and performance do not determine identity. We invert those two things. We will never know peace. We will be perpetually exhausted. What we are to do is to trust and rest in order to do. But sadly, these approaches that I'm describing right now, law and gospel confusion, are very common. The fallout is significant. There is much that I could say, but perhaps it's enough for right now to point out this great irony. If you mash the law and the gospel together, if you pit the two against each other, here it's law, here it's faith, we're not sure. Yes, it's faith, but it's also law keeping. If you do that, we end up asking the same question that the lawyer asked in our account today. Have I done this well enough? That's what he's asking. Have I done this well enough? We will ask that same question if we confuse these things. So here's what we need to understand. Faith in Christ provides righteousness under the law because Christ kept the law for us. Rather than pitting one, keep the law against the other, believe in Jesus, realize that one, believe in Jesus, provides the other, righteousness under the law. Everything that God demands in his law, he gives in his gospel. This is how the scriptures hang together. 
And it is not strange that God has done it this way. It is not strange that God has revealed it this way. He first demands the righteousness of works under the law. Then he graciously offers righteousness without works through faith in Christ. Why? Because it is necessary that we be convinced of our just condemnation in order that we might cast ourselves upon the mercy of God. Second point, which is a question. How should we apply the law to us as believers from this parable? That's a legit question. How should we apply the law to us as believers from this parable? The reason that I have been preaching this text the way that I have, in part, hammering what we would call the first and greatest use of the law, is because saints through history, up until relatively recently, have seen that the first use of the law to show us our sin and drive us to Christ, to condemn the lawyer so that he might be undone in thinking about his own righteousness, was the point of the parable period. This is the opinion of John Calvin and others, for example. That other uses of the law are not even in view. So how does the parable, and the law in particular as revealed in it, apply to us as Christians? How is it useful to us? Because you're thinking, like, brother, I'm trusting Christ. I, I don't need to be driven to Christ in faith. I, I, I believe in him. Listen to the language of our confession. The law exposes the sinful corruptions of their, the, the believers, their natures, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of sin. Along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. That's really useful. The sinful corruptions of their natures, hearts, and lives are exposed. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. So look, should we love our neighbor? Every head in this room should say, yes, we should. But what is this parable about? It's about a man extravagantly loving his enemy. So if you want some heart work this morning, like let's lay our hearts bare as Christians. Look around this room. You can, you can participate. You can look around this room at the people who sit here. We don't have enemies here. We don't have enemies here. But we have not loved each other this way. How much less people outside of here who are different than us or who make us uncomfortable or who hate what we believe or hate us. But what does the law require? What does it say about how we are to love our neighbor? Just listen and consider your heart as I consider mine. Listen. Honor your father and mother. So we are to fear and love God and so we should not despise or resent our parents or our superiors. We should not be difficult for them ever. We should honor them, serve them, love them, esteem them. You shall not murder. We are to fear and love God and so we should not endanger our neighbor's life. We shouldn't cause our neighbor any harm. We should seek to befriend our neighbors and do them good. We should seek to help them in every need they have. You shall not commit adultery. We are to fear and love God, and so we should live a sexually pure life in word and deed. Each man who is married should honor and love his wife. Each woman who is married should honor and love her husband. You shall not steal. We are to fear and love God, and so we should not rob our neighbors of their money or their property. We should not seek to acquire our neighbor's money or our neighbor's property through dishonesty or deceit. We should be upright in all of our dealings. We should aim to help our neighbors improve and protect 
what they have. You shall not bear false witness. We are to fear and love God, and so we should not tell lies about our neighbors or misrepresent them in any way. We should not betray them or slander them. We should apologize for them. I'm sure you misunderstood him. That's what we should do. We should speak well of them. We should live in charity with everyone, interpreting everything they say and do through that lens. We should assume well of our neighbor rather than impugning their motivations. You shall not covet. We are to fear and love God. And so we strive to be content with our own condition and our own circumstances. We should not envy the good of our neighbor. We should not lust after what they have. We should rejoice and celebrate with our neighbors when they receive blessing and things go well for them. So what's the appropriate response in light of today's passage? As you sit and listen to that law, the response is this. May we see in a greater way the depth of our sin and say, oh, how we need Christ. His death, his righteousness. And may we hate our sin with a holy hatred. We're going to conclude by looking again to Christ. All of this in mind. Let's look again to our Savior. Because you see, the law is good. The law guides our sanctification. But it is Christ who empowers our sanctification. It is our union with Christ that both sustains and transforms our lives. How are we confirmed and grown in the faith? By having the mercy and grace of Christ extolled to us. We are grown and confirmed in the faith through the word of Christ, through the administration of his table. These things empower sanctification by the Spirit. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, as we behold the Lord Jesus Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to another. So let's consider him. We are going to think about Christ in terms of what he did for us, and we're going to think about Christ in terms of how sacrificially he loved his enemies. Before I say that, I just want to briefly insert... This is me as a pastor because I care, and there's been a lot of whack stuff said over the course of centuries. There are many people who happily uphold Christ as example, but not as the righteous representative of sinners. They will uphold Christ as example, but not as the sinless substitute who bled and died for us. Jesus as example only is damning, and that's true. Christ as example in that sense only condemns because we fall so far short of him. Jesus is our Savior, first and always, and then, in him, covered in his blood and righteousness, we seek to imitate him. You understand that distinction. Covered in his blood, covered in his righteousness, we now seek to imitate him. He is the greatest and final revelation of God. Who else would we seek to imitate? In seeing him, we have seen the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So may this consideration of our Savior fuel us as we seek to love our neighbor. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In his own words, 
He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In his own words, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Our Savior left his throne above and exchanged his wealth for poverty. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He suffered and was perfected by suffering as a human being. God the Son became a man and suffered and was perfected by it as a human being. He learned obedience as a human being. This is Hebrews 2, Hebrews 5. God himself in human flesh did that. He was tempted in every way that we are. And while we were still weak, while we were ungodly and his enemies, he died for us. He was made to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He did that. How great is his compassion? How great is his mercy? How great is his sympathy? Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He helps the children. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's how great his compassion is. That's how great his mercy is. That's how great his sympathy is. All this and more he did for us. So beloved, consider him. And as we do, we say, let's love our neighbor. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.